Words fill a page. Pages fill a chapter. Chapters fill a book. Everyone has a story. Some have a story they are proud of telling. Others will have stories they would rather not tell. Every decision, big or small, writes the story of your life. We all have portions of our story that are still unwritten, but one day you'll be able to tell a story from this season of your life and see the hand of the author as you turn the pages. Let God write your story and you'll live one worth telling. My story, living the story you want to tell. Good morning, everyone. Welcome here. We're glad you're joining us at First Free Church. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we are in the middle of a series called My Story, Living the Story You Want to Tell. The question that I want you to consider this morning is how does God turn a terrible tragedy into a beautiful tapestry? How does God turn a terrible tragedy into a beautiful tapestry? Probably everyone here has dealt with a terrible tragedy at some point in their lives. And I'm not just talking about the game last night, although that was a terrible tragedy. But there are lots of other ways that we experience and face loss in our lives. And a few weeks ago, we held a prayer service here where we asked all of you to submit prayer requests, and a couple hundred people did, and we prayed for those right here in the service. We put them up on the screens. Many of you are here, and we prayed for those. The pastors and elders continue to pray for those. I want to share some of those with you today. Again, prayers for people who haven't been able to have children, prayers for children who have not trusted in Jesus, Prayers for someone who just entered drug rehab, a marriage that is falling apart, a mom with stage four cancer, a custody battle, a messy divorce, a family said that they were uprooting their lives and moving to this area, and I know what that's all about, so whoever you are, these were anonymous, come see me, I have tips for you. A woman with an unusual and concerning medical condition, several people with family members who are living a homosexual lifestyle. Several more parents that are devastated that their children have rejected God. Young people or people praying for young people who are fighting anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. Some people wrestling with doubts about God. A family that was in a bad car accident was caused by a drunk driver. Now they're dealing with the aftermath of that. And some people who are struggling with mental illness and wrestling with the stigma that's associated with that. And that's just a small sample. There were many, many, many of these heartbreaking prayer requests that came through. And, and as we're praying for these, it's impossible to not start to cry because you just think about the hurt and the tragedy that, that we have experienced right in here or in many cases are experiencing right now. It's, it's something that my wife and I, I feel very closely because we've experienced tragedy in our lives as well. Most of you know about this already, so I won't go into the, the details, but a few years ago, we were pregnant with identical twins, and we got into the second trimester, and we had a doctor's appointment with two good, healthy heartbeats, and then a couple days later, we had another appointment where there were no heartbeats at all, and we had to go deliver those babies. And it was a, a tragic experience for us. And, and maybe you can relate to that or, or have a similar story 
Even this morning, I talked with some of you that have similar stories and the devastation that that can bring. And you find yourself asking questions like, how can anything good ever come from this? Why would God allow this to happen to me? What is he doing right now? Or just that simple two-word question, why me? Why me, God? Why are you having me go through this? And so the question that I want you to wrestle with today is the question of how God can take a terrible tragedy and turn it into a beautiful tapestry. And I want to take you to one specific example. As we're in this My Story series, her name is Ruth. Ruth lived a little over 3,000 years ago in a place called Moab, which is near Israel in what is now called Jordan. Ruth is one of only two women in the Bible to have a book of the Bible named after her. She's the only non-Jewish person to have a book in the Old Testament named after her. And she was a Moabite. We've talked about Moabites recently, just a few weeks ago. They were not a good people. These were people that the people of Israel were supposed to avoid because they were involved in all kinds of paganism and idolatry and human sacrifices, even child sacrifices, all sorts of immorality. These were bad, bad people. God said that they were not supposed to marry Moabites, the Israelites. And they weren't supposed to allow them into the temple, not because of a race thing, but because to be Moabite was to be part of the Moabite paganism and to worship false gods and to commit human sacrifices and be involved in immorality. So the Moabites were to be avoided by the Jewish people. At one point, a bunch of Moabite women and Midianite women, the Bible says, seduced people in Israel to follow after them and to commit immorality with them and then to go also worship their gods. And God brought judgment on the people and tens of thousands of people died because the people got involved with the Moabites and the Midianites. And so what we want to see today from the story of Ruth is how God can turn a terrible tragedy in her life into a beautiful tapestry. You can follow along with me if you want in the book of Ruth. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can go to efree.org slash Bible, or you can follow us as well on the YouVersion Bible app if you have that under events and First Free Church. Before we do that, would you just bow your heads and pray with me and ask God to teach us something this morning? Heavenly Father, it is an honor to be able to walk into your presence and Jesus to sit at your feet and to learn from you. We're not learning from me this morning, we're learning from you and from your word. So God, I pray that you'd open our hearts to hear what you have to communicate to us. And I pray especially for those in this room right now and and watching online who are struggling with some kind of a tragedy in their life. God, I pray that you would work through your word and that your Holy Spirit would work to encourage and to uh, equip and prepare us to handle these tragedies in our lives well. Teach us something, Lord, that we can walk away with today. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. This story of Ruth is so amazing. I really don't want to add a lot to it. I just wanna share the story with you. In fact, I kinda wanna just get out of the way and just present the story of Ruth because it's so powerful. And I think you'll agree as we get into this, it's amazing what happens in this young Moabite woman's life. So we're going to just walk through a timeline of her life, and we're going to bring the scripture into that, and I'll point out a few things as we go, but really I just want you to understand here in the first part of our message time what this Ruth woman was all about and what her story was. So starting in verse 1 
of chapter one, we start off with one bad move. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Now, by all accounts, this was a really bad idea. Jewish people are not supposed to hang out with Moabite people. And yet he picked up his family and moved to the land of Moab. But why did he do that? Because there was a severe famine in the land. He felt like he had no choice. There was no food left. And so it was a, it was a bad move, a bad idea. But he felt like he had to go and live with the pagan Moabites or their family would starve. Now, as a result of this, it led to his sons marrying people who they should not have married. So we read in verse 3, then Elimelech died. Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. It's like you had one job. That was the thing you weren't supposed to do. You don't marry Moabite women. But he moved in with the Moabites, and now they're marrying Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. And then not only did Elimelech die, but then his two sons died sometime later. About 10 years later, verse 4 says, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. But then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab and return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. Now, Naomi must have been a good mother-in-law for these two women to want to go with her back to her land, which to them was a foreign land, and leave their families. They still had families they could go back to. We see that later in this chapter. But instead, they want to follow Naomi. She must have been a great mother-in-law. On their way back, Naomi started to think about the fact that these two young Moabite women would probably not be very desirable back in Israel. In fact, they really shouldn't. And so she starts to realize, maybe you guys should go back to Moab and stay there instead of coming with me. And so she urges them to go back, even though she knows, the text says, that this will lead to them going back to paganism, being part of a family that worships, worships false gods. And the younger women both protested. They wanted to go with her, but eventually Orpah agreed, yes, I will go back. But Ruth, she would not turn back. And here's what she said. Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And then there's this powerful commitment. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. You can see she's using the name of the Lord here. She is following after Yahweh. She has taken on Naomi's God as her God. So Ruth continued with Naomi. And they showed up in Israel. Ruth saw her old friends there, but it wasn't a happy reunion. She says in verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi? 
when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. Now, can you put yourself in Naomi's shoes? A woman who was moved away from her family and her home because they didn't have any food, then her husband dies, then her sons die, she has no one to take care of her. And now she's returning back to her people with her head held low, defeated, discouraged. She tells people, call me bitter. Don't call me by my given name, Naomi. Call me bitter. If that's not a sign of depression, I don't know what else is. Change my name to be bitter. Try to put yourself in Ruth's shoes. Here's a woman who grew up in a pagan culture. Now she's lost her husband, a foreigner in her land. She was never able to have kids, so she's probably struggled with that for a long time. Now she moves to a land that she doesn't know with people she doesn't know who are probably and rightfully very suspicious of her given the past history between the Israelites and the Moabites. And her only friend is her mother-in-law who has just declared an official name change to bitter. Not a pleasant situation for Ruth or for Naomi. If you want to talk about tragedy, these women probably have all of us beat Not to mention they were so poor that Ruth at this point had to go out into the fields and pick up the leftover stalks of grain that weren't worth harvesting by the workers there, just like all the other impoverished people. This was their their program to help people that, that needed food. You had to go out and you had to pick up these leftover stalks of grain. So she went out into the fields to do this. And as a Moabite foreigner, she would have experienced harassment doing this. People wouldn't have liked her coming in there as a Moabite woman and picking these the, the food that they thought maybe should go to the Jewish people. Now, you may have never experienced that level of tragedy in your life, but all of us have experienced some kind of tragedy, and so you can probably relate to the emotions that Ruth, or maybe more that Naomi, bitter, were going through at this point. But there's someone else you need to meet, and his name is Boaz. Boaz owned the field where Ruth started to pick up the grain, where she went to look for that leftover grain. He was a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's husband. And that meant something special back in his time. He was considered a kinsman redeemer, a kinsman or a family redeemer. In Jewish law, a relative like this had some responsibilities to care for and take care of family members of a deceased family member. And one of the responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer was if they could to marry the widow of a deceased family member and so to have children with that widow in honor of that deceased family member. And then those children would be able to care for them both as they grew older. But Boaz was not the primary kinsman redeemer. There was another relative who was actually more closely related and evidently that man did not care for Ruth or Naomi like he should have. He was the primary kinsman redeemer, but he, we don't even know his name. The Bible doesn't even give us his name. It just says there's another relative who is more closely related, but he did not care for Ruth and Naomi like he should have. Well, when Boaz came to his fields, he saw Ruth working and he asked about her. And this is what they told him. The foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. So Ruth is showing here that she is willing to work hard. 
She, she even asked permission to get out there and pick up this grain. And they told her, yeah, you can do that. You can follow along behind and pick up the scraps behind us. And then Boaz did something amazing. Now he knows who this woman is. He knows that she is a relative. He's not the one directly responsible for caring for her, by the way. There's another one who is more closely related and responsible for that. But he starts to show kindness to both of them. The word used here for kindness is hased. Hased, it's translated kindness. He told her to stay close to the workers so that she could get the best grain as she was gathering along. He told the workers to not mess with her, allow her to get in there and and pick the grain right with them, right next to them. Um, She could use their water, and he invited her to eat with them. And so he was showing acts of kindness, and this is what we read. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she said. And that's hesed. I am only a foreigner. Now that word hesed isn't really easy to translate. Kindness doesn't quite do it justice. It's, it's okay, it's an okay translation. But this is like a, a loyal family responsibility type of kindness. This is looking out for someone because there's a special relationship there where you, you feel obligated to help them but there's no requirement that you necessarily do. It's a very selfless kind of act, a sacrificial act to be helping someone with this sort of a family bond. And that's how Boaz treated Ruth and Naomi. It's treating someone like family, but in the best possible way. When you think of treating someone like family, you may or may not think of of really good things. This is a really good thing, a good relationship. They're supposed to care for each other. So try to put yourself back in Ruth and Naomi's shoes here. Can you imagine the relief that they felt when this wealthy relative started to show care for them, to provide for them, to look after them? All of these were acts of hesed. God was providing for Ruth and Naomi through Boaz at this point. And this is kind of an interesting thing to draw out here because a lot of times in the middle of our tragedy, We tend to look for the miracle, and we pray for the miracle, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the reality is that most of the time, God works through something called providence. Most of the time, even in the Bible, what you don't see are acts of observable supernatural intervention. Some of it's written about for us after the fact, so we look back on it through the lens of the biblical authors, and we say, wow, that was amazing that God did that. But from the perspective of the people who lived it, they may not have even realized what exactly God was doing. And oftentimes in our lives, it's God's providence working through other people that he helps us get through these tragedies. Did Ruth and Naomi know exactly what God was doing here? Did Boaz know exactly what God was doing here? Not necessarily. But God was working through his people to care for other of his people in the midst of their tragedy. And so I wonder at what point in your life you might relate more to a Ruth or a Naomi or even a Boaz where God might use you to providentially care for someone who's in the middle of tragedy, not through some kind of observable supernatural miracle, but through his providence working through his children. So in the middle of your tragedy, look for ways that God is blessing you. Maybe not through a miracle, maybe, but at the very least through his providence. God was providing for Ruth and Naomi here. So Naomi saw an opportunity. Here's this guy that's being nice to us. 
He's related to us. He's one of our family redeemers, kinsman redeemer. She saw an opportunity here, as any good mother-in-law would, for a great marriage. She decided to play matchmaker. And so she told Ruth how to arrange a private conversation with Boaz. Here's how she did it. She said, now do as I tell you, Ruth. Take a bath. It's a good step. Put on perfume. She wants her to smell nice. Dress in your nicest clothes, not those grain-gathering clothes that you've been wearing all day. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Hold up, where are we going here, Naomi? Then go and uncover his feet, okay, and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. Now, this may seem really strange and really weird, but it was actually necessary given the circumstances. Let me share with you why. It was a risky move. It was risky because if Boaz didn't like what she was doing, he could cut off support. It was risky because if Boaz thought anything inappropriate was going on here, he could become very concerned that his reputation would be damaged and he could cut off support for them. So it was a very risky thing that Ruth was willing to do here. He could reject her as a result of this. But here's why this was necessary, this risky move of approaching him at night after he sleeps, uncovering his feet, laying down at his feet. This was the only way to have a private conversation with Boaz. The only way to have this discussion with him, this kinsman-redeemer discussion without other people being around to hear. This was the time, and Naomi knew this. She knew at this time of year that he and the other men would be guarding the grain at the threshing floor. This was a DTR moment. Everybody know what a DTR is? Stands for define the relationship. How many of you knew that already? Define the relationship. Like you sit down, you have the conversation of like, okay, what exactly is this here? What are like, are we just friends? Is there more going on here? What is going on here? And so Ruth needed to have a DTR with Boaz to say, hey, what does this relationship look like here? Nothing inappropriate is going on. He's sleeping outside with the rest of the harvesters, protecting the grain at the threshing floor. Why would she uncover his feet? Well, because when he would, when his feet would get cold in the middle of the night, he would wake up and the men are all around sleeping, protecting the grain. He's lying there. His feet get uncovered, but he doesn't notice it. She's laying at his feet, not even up by his face. And then his feet get cold. He wakes up, he reaches down and goes, hold up. There's a woman here. What are you doing here? Laying down at my feet. He said, who are you? And it was dark, so he couldn't tell who she was. I am your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer, or my kinsman redeemer. Now, don't miss this. Ruth is calling Boaz her family redeemer, her kinsman redeemer. She is completely assimilated into this Jewish family. She's now, a, she's now a part of them. She's saying, you are my kinsman redeemer. Not Naomi's, not just Elimelech's. You are my, even though she's a Moabite woman, you are my kinsman redeemer. She had given up the ways of her people. She had followed after the God of Naomi and of Israel and was part of God's family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty. That's that same word, hased. You are showing more family loyalty now than you did before, for you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. And here's a really important part. Even though Ruth was in the middle of a horrible tragedy, 
losing her husband, being a foreign immigrant, a Moabite woman in a Jewish land. She had every reason from a human perspective to pursue immoral uh, applications in order to get herself out of the situation she was in, the economic situation she was in. In fact, it would not have been um, unusual for a Moabite woman to pursue that line of work, but she didn't do that. In fact, she had a reputation as a virtuous woman. And the lesson here for us is not to let our tragedy define us. Not to allow our tragedy to become something that impacts our character to where we make bad choices because of what we're facing. She had a reputation for being a virtuous woman. So Boaz promised her to do what was necessary. And Ruth brought that information back to Naomi. And Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. And that's exactly what happened. Naomi was right. Boaz went to the place where the leaders met. He saw the other kinsman redeemer walking by, called him over to him. This was the man that had not been doing anything to care for Naomi or Ruth. And he brought him over and he said, hey, you know that Naomi came back? Yes, I know. Well, there's land that's there and available for you. Would you like to redeem it? And the man said, yes, absolutely. And Boaz kind of dropped a bombshell on him and said, by the way, in order to redeem the land, you're going to have to marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. And here's what he says, then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. I've got other things in the works. You redeem the land, I cannot do it. So the Bible tells us at this point that the men each took off a sandal and gave it to each other. They had a sandal contract. That was how things were done back then. In fact, even in the book of Ruth, we're told, hey, by the way, this was just the custom back then, that they exchanged sandals for agreements. Now, here's the really cool thing. The leaders in Israel then gave their blessing to this relationship, and especially to Ruth. We read in verse 11 of chapter 4, Then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestors, Perez and son of Tamar and Judah. This was an incredible honor to bestow upon a young Moabite widow immigrant in Israel. Even better, God blessed Ruth at this point. He gave her the ability to have a child. In fact, it's the only time in the book where the author actually tells us God did this. Up until now, it's just been providence, 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 miracle. God stepped in and gave Ruth the ability to have a child. And here's what the the women said about this. In verse 14, then the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age for he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. And here's the best part. God was working behind the scenes this whole time to do something amazing that Ruth could never have even imagined. See, the son that Ruth had, his name was Obed. And Obed had a son whose name was Jesse. And Jesse had a son whose name was David. The King David. The King David that started many generations of kings, a family of kings. 
And even better than that, if you go to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, you will find Ruth there because she was also part of the lineage of Jesus. It's an incredible legacy for a poor Moabite widow immigrant in Israel who was picking up leftover grain in the field, could have had no idea what God was doing in her life at that point and what he would do. If only she could have known, here's what's going to happen for you. Here's what your future is going to look like. Here's what your legacy is going to be. And you're going to have a whole book in my word named after you and telling your story. It's an incredible legacy that she had. In the midst of her terrible tragedy, God was weaving a beautiful tapestry. And we get to see the end result. We get to look back and see that tapestry now revealed for us. She didn't have that view. She could only hope and pray that God would do something with her life and to rescue her in the midst of the tragedy that she was in. Now, what I want to do is invite you to, or introduce you rather, to another woman right now because we're going to throughout this series be inviting people on stage with us to share their story. And so I want to introduce you to one of our very own Mary Suzanne Crockett. Would you welcome her as she joins me on stage? Thank you so much, Mary Suzanne, for being up here with me. It's my pleasure. Anyone who knows me knows I love to talk. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to have you here. And I know that your life has had a series of ups and downs, different challenges as we all have had in our life. And I wonder if you could just share a little bit about your journey with us and some of the challenges that you've faced along the way. Well, I think like everyone, I set out to have a normal life and it just hasn't worked out that way. As a child, I was blessed to have two parents uh, and two older sisters. And when I was eight years old, at a church renewal, my entire family prayed to receive Christ as our Savior. And then we lived happily ever after. Thank you for laughing. That was your cue there. Uh, Actually, no, we did not. It was a year, about a year later that my father was indicted for not filing his taxes properly and ended up going to prison. And, you know, school is hard on a good day, but you can imagine having the shame and stigma of that. And it ended up, he ended up going to prison for just three months, but it could have been three years for the humiliation that we all felt. And, Now, from the perspective of years going by, I can now see what an incredible gift that tragedy was. Because my father was a very proud man. God does know what he needs to do to get us uh, fully devoted to him. And when my father was in prison, he met with other believers in a broom closet. And he came back a different man as a fully devoted, on fire follower of Christ. And my mother was a people pleaser. So you can imagine what she had to endure, raising the family and carrying on my dad's business while he was gone. And during that season, the Bible became her lifeline. And it became her source of strength in a way that left her change forever. 
And as a child, watching your parents, who could easily have fallen apart during such a season, come together in Christ, it impacted my and my sister's lives uh, for forever. And so that was my childhood. Uh, And then a story from my adult years, uh, I certainly identified when you shared with the people who were struggling with infertility, because Fess and I did uh, for a number of years, and oh, what a heartache that is. And then we were so blessed to find out we were expecting, and uh, we were blessed with a daughter, Lily, who has Down syndrome and had a major heart defect. And many people would consider that was a tragedy, Uh, but if you all have met Lily, you know uh, what a gift that she is and how she has transformed our lives and uh, just been what we call the golden ticket. And I'd love to say that's the end of our family story, but there is a tragedy in there uh, that is still raw for me because we were also blessed with two more precious daughters, Grace and Hope. And in my quest to be that ideal godly mother, I got my eyes off of living for the Lord and truly made an idol out of having my family be all I thought they should be. And I did identify with one point on the journey up here, and it was with the bitter woman. And you could call me Mara Suzanne, because I saw my children so oftentimes more as a burden than a blessing. And it was a year ago that the Lord showed me that the issue wasn't their behavior. The issue was my hard and demanding heart. That was what needed to change. And so I have repented of that, and I'm so grateful for their forgiveness and that we are in the process of healing. And I'm trusting the tapestry ending that's coming from this is that Steve and Sarah Odie invited me to be the speaker at their first mother-daughter retreat this September. And when they invited me, I said, you guys, I'm not exactly a poster mom and we don't have a poster story. And Steve was so kind, he said, don't worry, poster people don't come to these things. So if you all know of any non-poster people that would be, been, uh, be blessed by a broken story of God's redemption, uh, please let them know about this. I love that you're willing to come up here and share about this with us because I think for many people that know you um, or see you from a distance and see all the things that you're involved with and the ministry that you do, um, they might be tempted to think, oh, your life is perfect and everything is fit together and you just, you always do the right things. And here you are saying, no, that's not the case. <laughs> I, I make mistakes. And you know, the, the poster family isn't a biblical family because we don't find poster families in the Bible. We find lots of messed up families. We find lots of families. Those are with, my people. Yeah, with, <laughs> with struggles and, and challenges. So I really appreciate you sharing your challenges with us and letting us kind of see about those. So through all those challenges, life's ups and downs, what have you found to be most helpful for you to get you through some of those experiences and some of the tragedies that you've faced along the way? Well, uh, first let me tell you what does not uh, work, though I did try it a lot, is chocolate chips. Do not go to chocolate chips, people. Uh, I did a longitudinal snetty, it does not work. But uh, what does work, and oh, the other one is waiting for other people to change to what you think they need to do. Don't do that one either. I've done the research, it does not pan out. Here's what does work. 
One of the things that I saw in my mom was that she had an ongoing conversation with Jesus. You'd watch her in the car, and I'm sure people thought she was crazy as she was driving along, because she was just constantly talking to the Lord. And I inherited that. That is my legacy from her, and I am that crazy lady who's always talking to Jesus. And that is my prayer life. And oh my goodness, that has gotten me through, because he's always talking back, and he's always reminding me, Mary Suzanne, I'm with you. I'm for you. This isn't the end of the story. Hold on to my promises. And, you know, we all saw that storm last night. And each one of us goes through those kind of hail of the storms. But when we draw conclusions of, and this is how my life is going to be, we forget that the God of the universe, the God of glory, who knows us by name, is saying, hang on, sweetie. I'm with you. I'm in this, and I am going to use this not just to make a great story for you, but for my glory. That's the best news of all. That's great advice. Thank you for sharing that. One last question. I like to ask this of people. If you could go back into, let's say, your early adulthood, you know, your 20s, and give yourself some advice, what would you tell a younger you to do back then? Well, the first thing I would say is don't set up that cute guy Fess Crockett with your good friend uh, who he dated for a while. Immediately beeline to him and say, I'm the woman you should marry. But aside from that, if there's, the 20s were rough. I mean, that is a tough season because you have all of these grand illusions of how life is going to go, and there's always one person in your circle that it seems like it is going that way for them, mm-hmm. and that makes you just feel all the worse about yourself because you want to be happy for them, but you're like, oh, my life is kind of... And so my uh, counsel to that young Mary Suzanne would be do not compare. Do not compare because you don't know where their tapestry process is. They might be wrapping it up. It might, you know, God might be saying, I'm doing the last little needle threads on them. Whereas you might be just still, you know, God's trying to get the needle through the thread to get your story going. And now from the perspective of age, I see, you know, God is an equal opportunity tragedy allower. He does not dispense them, but he allows them for his purposes. And so I think of all of my young friends looking at social media, which is really just a visual parade of pseudo tapestries, isn't it? It's like, here's what I want you to think, but it really isn't. And so it would be hold on to God's promises and do not compare because your story is in the process of interacting with everyone else's tapestries and turning into this glorious quilt of the body of Christ that points all the glory to God. That is so good. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Would you thank her for sharing? Mary Suzanne, thank you. Well, maybe you are in the midst of tragedy today, or maybe you've recently experienced some, or maybe you're about to, we don't know. In the middle of that, maybe you feel a little bit like Ruth, someone who was trying her hardest to remain virtuous in the midst of all the tragedy that she was experiencing. Or maybe you feel more like Naomi, where you could just change your name to bitter, and you feel jaded by what has happened to you, and you are asking yourself, why? Why would God bring this on me, or why would God allow this to happen to me? But if only you could see the tapestry that he is weaving for you right now. 
See, a tapestry doesn't look very good when it's being made. It's chaotic. The weaver sits behind a loom, and if you were to look at the threads that they're pulling through there, it just looks like a giant mess. Which, let's be honest, that's probably how some of us feel about our lives right now. Everything is a huge mess right now. It's disorganized. To the untrained eye, it just looks like a disaster. Like maybe it's full of mistakes. Only when the weaver is finished and they walk to the other side can you see the beautiful work of art that they were trying to create. And can that be fully appreciated? It takes a long time to get there but it is worth the wait. I wanna share with you a poem. This was quoted by Corey Ten Boom from some other author over 100 years ago. The, the author is anonymous, but I want you to listen to the words of this poem. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. You can trust God in the middle of your tragedy and understand that he will weave something more beautiful than you could ever imagine. He will bring purpose to the tragedy that you are going through. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe through a miracle, but probably not. But trust in the invisible hand of his providence and his working and look for ways that he is blessing you even in the middle of your storm. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible story of Ruth and, and the awesome example that it is of remaining virtuous and having character in the middle of such a difficult circumstance. Thank you for the example that she gives to us and for how you taught us through this, Lord. I pray that we would remember in the middle of our tragedy that you are doing an incredible work that is bigger than we can understand that there's more happening here than we know and realize and help us to trust in you in the middle of whatever is going on, whatever threads are being woven in our tapestry right now. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.